From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do this every week here on SiriusXM. Got the whole crew coming to you via Zoom. Eric Bradlow's over there. Shane Jensen, Audi Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. Been doing this for coming up on seven years. Haven't always done it on Zoom, but glad to be back in a full two hours. Glad to have you guys with us. Our setup has been to talk COVID-19 in the first quarter. It so much influences sports these days, influences our lives, and there's a lot of numbers, stats, forecasting to make sense of. We want to do that again this week, even as it feels, guys, that we're changing gears a little bit from the analytics of the pandemic to the analytics of immunization. Um, I think we might be running too quickly past the analytics of the pandemic, but I'm curious in the last week, what's caught your eye in the world of COVID-19? Well, I can tell you there's one one uh, piece of information that I got in my preparation for Thanksgiving, right? So I think that uh, we understand a little bit about how to protect yourself. It requires a certain amount of, uh, of um, you know, commitment because you have to quarantine yourself, then get tested and continue to say, stay away from people. And then you can, I think, pretty reliably be, be considered safe. Um, so real quickly, just underscore this, because I think it's a great reminder to everybody. This is one of the mistakes that's being made everywhere with testing. People take it as too much of a security blanket. If you come up positive, you're good. You're saying, Adi, the only way to be that confident is to quarantine for how many days ahead of time? Four days, right? Four days so, or so, yeah. To three or four days to quarantine ahead of time to be yeah. confident that that test is not missing something. Okay. That's right. Just and then, of course, you have to make sure that you don't see anyone afterwards so that you don't pick it up <laughs> afterwards. That's sort of obvious, obviously. I think people realize that. So you need a couple of days. But what's interesting to me is, um, and, and I read this paper uh, by, uh, I think it's an, a, a, a Harvard professor. I have to be certain about that. Um, what, what, was, what he did was try to study the, the antigen test, which is generally poo-pooed, um, but it is, I think, has enormous potential. First of all, it's unbelievably cheap. It's about a dollar. And second, it is immediate. It's rapid. You can, and the, and the technology is there to essentially distribute them at home. Where it's weak is, it won't pick up an infection as early as the PCR. Okay. So if you're at, if you're you're asymptotic, but uh, not asymptotic, asymptomatic, but uh, <laughs> but infectious. Here's about the mathematician talking. <laughs> you're asymptomatic, but infectious. The antigen test has a, um, um, a very small, small, small chance relative to the PCR of picking up the, the, the virus because it looks for a protein on the virus okay. as opposed to the DNA. And so people have poo-pooed this. The problem is, in, and this has recently been studied, is that, oh, that period of sort of inadequacy is actually pretty short. Okay. About, 12, about 12 hours. Oh, geez. Okay. Wow. And which is remarkable. And it has a lot of positive on the back end because the PCR test can show up positive long after you stop being infectious. A false positive. And it's not a false positive in the sense that it didn't find virus that was, I mean, there are false positives that are operator error, but it's false positive in the sense it's not infectious. The reason why it's a problem is that the antigen testing is so efficient for like daily testing, right? So if you're if you're gonna and particularly if you use am I hearing that it's 
it, it's kind of more proportional to the the actual amount of viral load that you have. That's right. That's right. And, and by the way, and viral load is very proportional to infectiousness and illness. Of course, of course. Right? Okay. So and so so the antigen doesn't pick anything up until about the day before you show symptoms. But it turns out about two days before you show symptoms, you might be infectious. But the <laughs> antigen will get it um, pretty close. And the point is, is that it's a super cheap test yep. that has enormous amount of potential for surveillance. And we're not using it. When you say we're not using it, what do you mean by that? It's, you know, for example, New York City doesn't count it in its, uh, in its COVID positivity um, calculations. Um, Hawaii, other states that use this as means of uh, entrance, uh, countries that are now talking about allowing testing as a surrogate for, for entry as, and, and, and quarantine. Antigen testing has been poo-pooed, and I've spoken to healthcare professionals who have said, oh, I'm not using that. It's not accurate enough. And they just simply don't understand the curve um, and, and the difference between the PCR's accuracy, which is greater, but it also has a downside, and the overlap, which is surprisingly mm-hmm. short. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and uh, Maddie, Maddie just tossed out the point that, that, that schools are not allowing the rapid test, the antigen test, which That's, is rapid. Is it as or accurate actually, once this time period is over? Essentially, it is. Um, and so this the, it's, it seems to be it's a weakness in the beginning. And because of that, um, it's been it's been demoted, if you will. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's a short, much shorter uh, weakness than people thought it was. And Adi, it must be the case that it's not just that they're rejecting the antigen and using PCR. They're not doing testing at all when they could be using the antigen test. That's right. And I mean, I can be diabolical about it and say, well, you know, LabCorp's made two, three million dollars, three billion dollars, I'm sorry, on its PCR. It doesn't have that kind of profits on on the dollar Mm -hmm. test. And after all, the government's paying. So why Mm -hmm. not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I'm kind of glad the University of Pennsylvania is using the PCR test because it's not my money. And mm-hmm. it sounds like it's going to be at least slightly superior. But I, I think there is kind of an interval of like there probably are corporations or kind of, you know, certainly organizations that probably are doing no testing or, or limited testing mm-hmm. when they could be you doing more widespread testing, even if it was this kind of this. I guess, well, like more dubious technology, though you're arguing well, it's not actually that Adi, much more let's, dubious. Let's, let's, let's compare the following from a analytics and a public health perspective. I don't know what the cost ratio is of the PCR to this to the other test. About 100 to 1. If some, how much? Say, say that again? 100 to 1. Okay. So imagine you took that money and gave it to 100 more people. Or imagine you took each person and said, Adi, you can have two things. You could have a PCR test twice a week. Or you could have this other test, the saliva antibody test, whatever. You could have it every single day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. Yeah, right. You exactly. both get exactly the point. Um, and I, I, so, you know, and Kate, not Kate, Shane, you mentioned the PCR with Penn. But for most people, their PCR results don't come back as rapidly as Penn produces. Itself. No, I understand. I understand. That's right. Penn's and got seemingly a superior and, pipeline. And so what are you going to do? And it's just an impractical test. Yeah. And it's surprising that it's become so we've, and we've been talking about this, this, this strip, these antigen strips for a long time and the technology has been available and it just, it hasn't hit the market. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like it's the right comparison to say a one, one antigen test versus one PCR, but rather, right. you know, for either the, wait, the waiting period or cost comparison, some kind of make it a little bit more apples to apples and it may be a very different result from a practical perspective. It sounds like antigen could make a lot more sense, not even just not as bad as it thinks, but it might make a lot more sense, especially when people are waiting for these PCR tests. Um, okay. On the vaccine side of things, 
we're getting a little more detail from some of these new vaccines. So Moderna, for example, come out today saying that they're 100% effective in stopping serious illness. Now, that's only in that sample, right? So right. it can't be 100%. How do you even think about what the right rate is given what they're saying? Again, this is serious illness. This isn't just getting COVID. It's like getting a serious case of COVID. They had zero cases in their treatment. Now, that's ridiculous. <laughs> because they got less than the number of fingers I have on both hands of cases yeah. in there in the vaccine group and yeah. serious cases, particularly in the, the population they tested on, which was they, it was pretty broad, but they didn't go after very ill people, you know, with baseline comorbidity. Yeah. Um, the, the serious illness rate is so much lower than people actually realize that the expected number of serious illnesses in eight positives is less than, than less than one. Okay, expected. good, helpful. So Adi, walk us through some of the basics. Hit us again with what we think the, the, the basic rate of the basic incidences out there. And then among those who get it, what's the incidence of severe cases? Give us some basics. Oh, okay. So incidence is a, is a tricky number because that depends on where you are. And um, and and how often you're going out and bound it for Dakota, I think is seeing incidences of around 10 percent in the population um, mm-hmm. in our areas. Uh, we're seeing incidences of two to three percent and overall mm-hmm. aggregate over this entire period on a, on a say a weekly basis. You're talking looking at incidences that are in one of the thousands, um, but sort of an aggregate. We're looking at percentages um, and potentially as high as 10 percent, even higher in some some locations. Um, if you want to know what what fraction turns into a positive test, that's, that's really what we're talking about. But I would guess uh, um, hospitalizations are about three to 5% among people who get, uh, who get positive. Okay. So very small fraction, very small and much lower by, by the age group. I mean, it's ridiculous that hospitalization rates among, among children is, is under 1%. Um, And for, but for, for seniors, it's could be 10, 20, 30, even higher percentage depending Mm -hmm. on the age. So it really is something that's hugely uh, inconsistent across society. But I would guess, I mean, I've seen a lot of studies that have tested drugs in outpatient um, settings. And the problem they've had is powering up because the incidences of serious cases are yeah. so low that yeah. it's very hard to test a drug when you can't get enough people to get sick enough to see if it works. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you're cautioning us. I mean, this is going to be such great advertising for them, the, the 0% severe. And you're saying, look, there's, there's just too low a, a, an incidence for that to be meaningful. Eric. Well, let, let's get to the question that they're actually voting on today, but relates directly to what Adi just said. Suppose you knew you were going to have, I'll make it up, 50 million vaccines to give out by, let's say, February or March. And your goal was to minimize, we could say deaths, or you could say minimize severe cases. Who would you give them to? And everyone says, well, of course you give them to the most vulnerable. Not obvious. Because if your goal is to prevent people from getting it, you should give them to the super spreaders. And that might prevent older people from even getting it. And so one of the very interesting statistical questions, by the way, this is classic network analysis diffusion theory, which is, do you give it to the people that are most likely to, I'll use my language of marketing, do you give it to the people that are most likely to click on the ad, or do you give it to the, or do you give the email or the text message to the people that are more likely to spread 
this to other people. And mm -hmm. so it's not obvious who to give. If your goal, again, was to minimize the total number of severe cases, it's not obvious who those 50 million doses should go to. Well, if you, if you, if you throw into the equation trying to bring back economic activity as fast as possible, um, you want to bring back not only the people who are most likely to spread, but the also people who are most likely to go back to work. And thirdly, um, the thing that I think is actually interesting is that these viruses, these vaccines do have side effects and ramping up from the 22,000 that have taken them now to the 22 million that might take them later. You're going to see much more of the range of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Am I yeah. giving it to my grandmother? Is that a smart move? I mean, they're much more likely to potentially have a, a, a debilitating reaction uh it's sure i know the right answer to this yeah we i wish they were better preparing the public for this because it's just at the numbers that we're talking about it's just oh. inevitable and and i think that's just not going to be well understood we need to be prepared for these occasional bad severe severe side effects that are just inevitable with this big a, a population but I, I really like what eric's and well both of you guys are what you're trying to take us which is how do we prioritize? I mean, this is a super complicated question and there's not a right answer. To some extent, it's a, it's a values conversation. There's a, if you narrowed it down to just an epidemiological thing, then there might be a right answer, but it's not just that. It's about the value of life. It's about economic activity. So Eric referred to a voting today. It's a CDC meeting where they're having hearings on how to prioritize groups for immunization. One of my questions is what difference does it make what the CDC says? They've been so sidelined in this whole thing. Will it matter? So the C if the CDC came out with some guidelines, what impact will those have? Historically, they might have a big impact. Well, what will they have here? I mean, I, uh, opinions are often important to be put on the page and transmitted. I have to say I'm going to advocate for myself, and I think teachers have got to go early. Um, why? Because, first of all, they, they encounter – the people who are most likely to be super spreading, um, maybe not the elementary schools, but the high schools are there. Those kids are they are prime suspects for spreading this this virus. Um, and so are college kids. And also the economic um, and, and the academic um, desire to get them back in the classroom. Does yeah. that account for something? I, I'm not talking about vaccinating. Well, I, I mean, I think <laughs> I mean, economically, I think it's obviously the younger uh, kids are the most, it's the most disruptive, right? Like, so, I mean, yes, I think, I, I think, I, I, so, I mean, you know, if, if you're kind of arguing um, for, you know, kind of trying to do it with getting kind of kids back to school, that's going to be much more economically beneficial, I guess, than even the professors. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of doing what we're doing relatively. I mean, it's not, we're all looking forward to getting back to in-person activities, right. of course, but I think it's less of a priority than say at the elementary or, or, yep. or, or middle school level. Real quickly, let me give you a sense of how some others are setting, making arguments and we'll see what the CDC says, but um, Juliet Kayam posted, she's a Harvard professor, used to be Homeland Defense. She posted a, a neat little framework here from a couple of different groups. Um, one is um, the framework for equitable allocation according to National Academies Press, another is an academic article. But let me just give you a sense of how they're thinking about this. They're saying the first 140 million people who are going to get this thing, how should we, so these are high priority people. How should we allocate them? Everybody's got healthcare workers first. And then first responders are right in there second or third. Um, and then that the one group has what you would like, Adi, they bump teachers up to about third or fourth priority um, others are saying, what about critical risk workers? And then you've got this question of people with comorbidities. Um, 
There's a two comorbidity group. There's a one comorbidity group. What about the homeless? The homeless are both, both groups have the homeless and near the bottom of the top, near the bottom, but they're still in the, in the priority group. So these are the groups that are being talked about right now. Just, and, and I think it's important that we surface this stuff because this is going to be such a, such a widespread conversation for the next few months as these things start rolling out. I did hear that the current administration's plans were completely decentralized, that they were going to give it up to the states. So I, they've got to make some allocation on how to ration to the states. But once they get to the states, it's up to the states on how things. It creates a nice natural experiment. Again, well, or experimental sending. I'm sure different states will do have different decision making and we'll kind of be able to see the consequences. Well, and to be fair, different states have different situations, mm-hmm. right? They have yeah, different no, that's right. They have different risk and they have better information about that. So I don't think that's the craziest thing in the world. I do think it's interesting to think about how they're going to allocate across the states. And it would be nice if that were transparent. Eric, you've I'm been trying to build on what Adi said. Adi gave a good economic argument uh, for certain people going back, but you could argue. Let's imagine healthcare workers who say, well, they're not, you know, why is it so important that they get it first? Well, they're the ones that are saving lives of the people that get sick. So you could make an easy argument that um, if they're not able to do their jobs, massive numbers of more people will die because who's going to give people the therapeutics and who's, who are the people that are going to be in the hospital? Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, what else on the what else on the COVID front here, guys? In in the last minute or two, we have. So the last part, this is building back on something Adi's been saying for a long time: is that you don't need a hundred percent of the people uh-huh. to get the vaccine for there to be generated. Not the I'll call it bad kind of death herd immunity where they don't do anything and they just hope. But um, what happens? Like how quickly will things plummet in terms of the infection rate when 40, 50, 60 percent of the people get the vaccine? And my guess is it's going to go down real fast. Well, uh, I wish the epidemiologists would chime in on that because we know the modelers, the modelers should have something to say about that. Right. But it's a super interesting and super relevant question. And I, I don't have an intuition for it. You said your intuition was around 70 percent, Eric. That's I, I don't. I oh, I think it can be much lower than that. Uh, the, really, the harder part question is are we going to vaccinate people who've already had it oh gosh okay new new interesting question um all right fellas well that has been the first quarter a quick little run through COVID 19 we've got three quarters to go we've got a lot of sports to talk about here in the second quarter we're going to dive into football third quarter we'll open up a little bit and fourth quarter we'll have an interview going to interview todd golden replay an interview with todd golden head coach of the U- university of san francisco team that just knocked off University of Virginia, their analytics forward program. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now, opening up to the world of sports. And a quick reminder, you can reach us, guys. You can reach us on Twitter at WMoneyball. Great way to send us questions or observations also just follow we, we try to keep you posted on the world of sports up there at w moneyball or email us we have a email these days proper email even a proper wharton email the address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu moneyball at wharton.upen.edu very happy to hear from you guys either way and we try to pull out questions and observations from you guys periodically Cade massey hosting this quarter with my Two buddies, longtime collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Open lines, fellas, as we used to say, open sports. 
anything on your mind around the world of sports, especially let's do a little, uh, let's do a little football. Anything catch your eye in the world of um, NFL, for example, anybody paying attention to the NFL? Oh yeah. I'm paying attention to the NFL. I watched a lot of games uh, over the last few days. I mean, obviously the big news, in the NFL is we're still, we, we can't even close out this week's slate of games. Yeah. Today, we, we usually can actually talk about the entire week of games. We still got to wait until 3.40 p.m. tomorrow and for the last crazy. game of this week. Is it, true that, is it true that the reason it got bumped from Tuesday to Wednesday is that the Baltimore Ravens threatened a wildcat strike, that they were being pressured to play under, underprepared, and that and the league gave them a little more leeway? Is that, is that, does that sound like that? That, that, that? I mean, that's certainly the story I heard. But, I mean, if that is the real story, then Denver has extra complaint to the league. <laughs> if, 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 if there was a postponement due to kind of, – because at least the league's reason for not postponing the Denver game is that they were only going to do postponements for actual COVID outbreak so they need a better uh, issues, need a not better... competitive issues. Denver needs yeah. a better union rep. They weren't organized. I, that's right. They yeah. No. You know, but you know why the game's at 3.40 as opposed to 8 p.m., right? Yeah, that's also a weird because part of this whole thing. who's televising the game, has committed to the tree lighting ceremony at, like, Rockefeller Center or something like that, and they can't preempt that, and so okay. they have to play the game in the afternoon. Okay. So we, that's, we might that's, learn something about, about TV ratings and how, uh, how elastic they are to the time of the day. We always assume that 340 is just horrendous, but maybe it turns out to be exceptional. <laughs> well, we'll find out. It'll be like watching, you know, a, a March Madness with the meaningful games in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, tell me, the guy, a lot of guys were out. So, you know, can you, can you come up positive for COVID late last week and still play football on Wednesday this week? I mean, is Lamar Jackson going to play? No, okay. I think – I, I think I think almost everybody that I, I think there's got to be a, a smaller delay than that. I mean, there are people, there are players that were put on the COVID list that aren't. So any player that I think is actually COVID positive, there's no chance they could play in this game upcoming. But there's we a lot of people on that list that are that are on that list just because of co- you know kind of contact tracing, right? And so right. if they've tested negative, they can be removed from the list. Okay, that day. but I, but I believe Lamar, for example, actually did test positive for COVID. So I think there's almost no. Ch- I don't think there's any chance he can actually. I mean, what do y'all think about the situation that the league put Denver? Did we, we, the league might say Denver put themselves in this situation? But what do you think about the situation? Like that, college teams, all the conferences have these kind of fifty-three player rules which is down from an 85 man scholarship where and they have cutoffs at every position if you don't have a certain number of quarterbacks you don't have to play if you don't have a certain number of linemen you don't have to play and that clearly wasn't the case here some broncos were complaining that they were being made an example of what what's your position on i mean i think they should have allowed a delay so that these these uh, that they could actually field a quarterback i mean i i I think you know it's i mean it, it one could argue it may not have been that competitive a game even if the Denver had a real quarterback at that at their position, but I mean they had no chance in that game, and we saw it. I mean that game was essentially unwatchable. I I, I started to watch it just out of intrigue, but it was kind of clear that you know it was not going to be a very enjoyable game to watch. I I, I doubt even Saints fans enjoyed that particular display, right? I think it it also partly shows what happens. And I watched a bunch of that game. By the way, I think the game was either scoreless or maybe seven nothing to start. Like for example, Denver's defense played well to start okay. the game. And I think what it showed, though, from an offensive point of view is I don't care if you have Barry Sanders, you know, who you have back there. If the other team knows you're going to run the football, yeah. you can't run the football. Yeah. And you just can't. And there was no threat of them throwing the football. 
Um, and even if there's a threat, it's similar to what happens to lots of quarterbacks. There's certainly no threat. He was going to throw the ball more than 10 yards down the field. Yeah. And so there's, you don't have to cover anybody deep. You press everybody up at the line of scrimmage. And yeah, if this, if the, you know, former college quarterback, high school quarterback beats you deep, it happens. And so I think it showed a lot about kind of um, when the other plays are so predictable, it's just, you just can't move the ball. Eric, does it kind of, by going so extreme, does it show that that must be the case with lower probabilities as well? I mean, does it not make the case that you shouldn't run against the stacked boxes, that you should have more deception in your strategy? I mean, doesn't it kind of, by going to the extreme and showing, look, guys, it matters a lot, whether, to the extent to which they're ready for you, doesn't it kind of underscore the need for these things? So I'm not convinced of that. I think, you know, one of the things that Adi has brought up a lot, and it would be good to hear your thoughts on this, Adi, would be, you know, just adding some randomness yeah. to make a big difference. Unpredictability is kind of pretty key, it seems, I think, with offensive scheme. Well, one of the things that I, that I think is really fascinating, I was actually thinking about this on my bike ride this morning. Um, you know, we always talk about how important the quarterback so is, but this experiment doesn't sort of reveals that, but doesn't really, because we're not talking about a, a professional quality quarterback that replaced them. We're talking about someone who really shouldn't be there at all. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, and so when you do that at the quarterback position, we all see it just collapses and just absolutely collapses. Yeah. Um, and so that's what sometimes happens. Uh, uh, extreme events often give you a, a mis, uh, poor ap- perception of, of, of reality. So when you have zero chance of throwing it, essentially, then you then it's a, a monumental impact. Really, you, you got to figure out if you push your way off these edges by even a little bit what that changes. I mean, the the this, the analysts in, in in the sports the football analyst community are constantly telling us that they're still running too much. But at one point, that's going to turn around, right? Because you still need that deception. But yeah. they claim that we're not even ne- anywhere near that. And uh-huh. uh, I'd love to see some of that randomness that's still in the realm of, of reasonableness, not go all the way out to never run or never, pa- never pass. Those are, although I, I imagine never pass could be actually interesting. I mean, sorry, never, 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 never run. run. I think it could be interesting. Right, I right, right. I understand you could have thrown the ball a lot in this game, but here's what I mean by that. You understand you have a line of scrimmage in football. Anytime Denver wanted to throw a screen pass where the guy catches the ball three yards behind the line of scrimmage, they could have run that play anytime they wanted, and they could have lost two to four yards every single time they ran that play. So this quarterback could have been, I'll make it up, 15 out of 18 for minus 10 yards if they had wanted to run that offense. They just felt, at least when you're running the football, you have a greater chance of getting back to the line of scrimmage. Because if you run a screen behind the line of scrimmage, the other team, and they know you're going to, if you throw the ball at all, it's not going down the field, you might be better off running the football compared to that bad screenplay. Talking about the way they play defense against this poor guy who came off. He's a, he's a practice squad wide receiver. All right. So let's just keep that in mind. Thinking about the way they defended him makes me want to see some objective measure of how teams defend different quarterbacks and just, and maybe just go to the extremes and, and to pick a guy who they know doesn't throw very well outside the hash marks or generally has a, a weaker arm and some way of showing how they defend that guy versus how they defend a guy who can hit kind of any part any part of the field. We yeah, no, I mean, I think that I, I think that's a, a great a great point that that you know are kind of you know the, the, this unanswered question of like what is the appropriate mix of running and passing is very dependent on the talent that you actually have running that 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 mixture. 
I mean, I, th- I honestly think Kansas City could throw every single down if they wanted to. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think, I don't think, you know, I don't think a team can kind of like, even if the team, a team knew it was passing, could defend essentially that wide receiver core and Mahomes' ability to kind of get it to anybody. I mean, Kansas City can essentially throw it at will. They only run the ball as far as I can tell in order to kind of slow the game down so that their defense doesn't get gassed on the other side of things. I'm going to push back on that. Not that, I, not that I'm pushing that hard at, but I'm going to push back a little bit. I did watch a little bit of football. KC versus the Tampa Bay was a great game. Um, I'd, I'd like to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on Brady on what it, what you what you learned about him based on the previous ones. But holding off on that, they do a lot of play action fakes. I've learned that term, um, and, and it's uh, and that's a threat of run. And I wonder whether or not what the the you're again you're pushing if they really do never run. That's a huge change. Okay, Adi, this and- is this is something that the the community has emphasized here in the last couple of years, and our buddy our buddy Josh Hermsmeyer has been in the middle of it, that, that play action is always helpful. And, you, and it never loses effectiveness. It's remarkable. They've run you know, motion-based analyses of these that show even, even late in the game, even when it's been used many times, that middle linebacker is still biting on that fake. And it goes to or the safeties. Or right, the, but, but my point is, is that if you knew they were not going to run, then the play would probably be in effect. That, that it, it, maybe it's going to change over the generations, yeah. but it's going to take that much time because these guys are trained from the time they are in high school and younger to read cues mm-hmm. um, from, from how the offensive line is blocking, for example. That it's just really hard to, de- to, to, to deprogram that. You don't want to deprogram in some sense because those guys are supposed to be so instinctive. So you're breaking those instincts, which is really helpful. That's the current, that's the current understanding, at least as far as I understand. Yeah. I think, um, Adi, you mentioned about the Chiefs Buccaneers game. I mean, nothing much changed from my perception. Um, I think the Bucs have an above average defense, but let's not make it out to be the championship NFL defense from the Warren Sapp era. Um, Tom Brady still can't successfully throw the deep ball enough. He still throws. He can't occasionally complete a deep pass. We've learned that from last week. Occasionally. But even those, by the way, let's be clear, those were 25-yard passes. As you guys have seen in the last few weeks, literally um, Pat Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, et cetera, threw balls that went over 50 yards in the air completed. Even the deep ball you're referring to was a 25-yard deep ball that Brady mm-hmm. threw. And so I, I think the Bucks are who they are, which is um, they're a misfit team for Brady's skill set currently. They don't have a great running game. They don't have a bunch of quick receivers that can, you know, when Brady gets pressured, can dump it off. That's not their offense. They have big receivers who can get down the field, but he doesn't have enough time because they have a mediocre offensive line. So nothing's changed. They, they are who they are. And by the way, just so you know, they have a 5-0 and record against teams under 500 and a 2-5 and record against teams 500 and above. That's all you need to know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do think I, I do think that they have the personnel that with better scheming, with better coaching, basically, I, I think they could. I mean, I agree they're not going to, you know, they're not major contenders for the Super Bowl. With better coaching, they could certainly go make a deep run, I think, because as you sort of alluded to, you know, Brady is still good enough and their wide receivers are very good. They If, if they had a, a kind of a, 
uh, schemes that were more focused on their strengths, I think they would be better offensively. And I mean, obviously, I think defensively, if they'd, you know, not made the decision to play single man to man on Tyreek Hill, that game would have been, you know, obviously very different, at least in the first quarter. So speaking of Brady, his former team had a surprising win this past weekend over the very hot Arizona Cardinals. They are only five and six, and we kind of wrote them off early in the season. Have we written them off too early? And an interesting contrast is another AFC playoff contender, kind of a wild card playoff contender, the Cleveland Browns, who have a much better record, eight and three, and they won again this weekend. But Massey Peabody, for example, has New England up at 14 in the league, right in the middle. At least they're in plus territory, where Cleveland's at like 22nd in the league in minus territory. Do you, what are your takes on the Pats and the Browns? They're both vying, and obviously the Browns had a leg up for the wild card. But if they were playing on a neutral field right now, we'd make the Pats like three-point favorites. I'm a little surprised Cleveland's that low in Massey Peabody, body, to be totally honest. I mean, I, I, I don't think Cleveland is – you know, the cream of the AFC by any stretch, but I, I would certainly make them a better team than New England um, on a neutral field, just for my own kind of, I guess, a qualitative yeah. evaluation. Um, but I mean, there's, I mean, there's no way, I, I think well, the Pats are a me, real long get, shot. They would have to win out essentially to go to the playoffs. And I don't so see them doing that. Let me tell you who the mighty Cleveland Browns have beaten, by the way, to give some justification to Massey Peabody. They've beaten the Bengals, the Washington football team, the Cowboys, their one good win, the Colts, they beat the Bengals again, they beat the <laughs> Texans, they beat the Eagles, and they beat the Jaguars. Ooh, that's an ugly schedule. They've lost to the Ravens by 32 points, the Steelers by 31 points. Oh, my gosh. And by 10 to the Raiders. So that's their 8-3 and three record. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're 8-3, and three, but – who I mean, yeah, all right, they have a one nice win against the Colts. That's it. The rest of these teams are terrible that they've beaten. So it's not that surprising to me that their record and by the way, if they if you told me right now Cleveland was playing at New England in a playoff game, I would take New England in that game. I think New England should be the favorite in that game. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're conditioning on them somehow having made the playoffs, I agree that maybe New England has somehow gotten their their stuff together enough for, for, for them to be better than they are. But I mean, basically, honestly, New England would lose that game because New England's pattern this year has been to beat good teams, to be very competitive, almost beat or beat good teams, Seattle, Arizona, etc., and then play terribly against terrible teams. They've lost to Denver. They've lost to... You know, I, I'm, I'm I, I actually the only really I'm looking at it right now. The only really bad loss the Patriots have had this year was really against the Texans. But they have wins against the Dolphins, Denver? the Raiders, the Ravens and the Cardinals. And so they lost to the Seahawks. It's not a horrible loss. They lost no. to the Chiefs. That's not a horrible loss. They lost to the Broncos. That's not a good loss. That's they not lost a to good the 49ers. Loss. That's not going to be hard. They lost to the Bills. They lost to the 49ers. I mean, I agree. The 49ers, I think, might end up being a playoff team. But, I mean, when they lost that game, they were terrible. Yep. I don't, I don't yeah. know. We'll see. I mean, I, 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 I think more than anything, it's, you're not going to make up three games in the standings at this point in the season to Correct. kind of put yourself right. into playoff contention. So, guys, looking, looking forward, to, it looks like kind of a fun schedule. One of the crazy things about this schedule is we're taping this Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday. Wednesday afternoon, we have a Week 12 game. Yeah. Thursday, of course, we have a game. Sunday, we have a game. Monday, we have a game. Next Tuesday, we have a game. So no Thursday game. Wednesday and next Tuesday, we have five days of professional football. And of course, the two days that aren't playing professional, 
they're playing college. So beginning with the day this show is posted, we've got seven straight days of major football if you want to indulge it. Any games next week, this coming week, catch your eye. Well, I mean, I, you, Eric brought up the uh, we we briefly brought up the 49ers, who I think are a very interesting team that I actually think is, are posed to potentially make a run to the playoffs, despite all the injuries that they've had and and kind of you know uh, adversity they faced. They're very well coached and they are kind of um, got a momentum going forward. But they're and they're playing Buffalo this upcoming week, and I think that could be you know if we talked a few weeks ago, I would have said that game probably wouldn't be terribly competitive. But I've, I've got hopes that San Francisco actually. Uh, gives Buffalo a run in that game. So that's a game I'm kind of excited about coming up. I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the, that's one of the most interesting for sure. And the market out there has them at about uh, two and a half point favorite. The bill's about two and a half point favorites on the road in San Francisco, which really saying something, I don't know. I don't think that that, I don't think it should be that kind of spread. I think we're going to find, look, we talked about Cleveland. There's two, eight and three teams playing this week against each other. And Cleveland's one of them and Tennessee's the other. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can the Browns, if the Browns sweep the entire AFC South, if they win this weekend, they swept the South, right? You just said that they beat the Jaguars and the Texans and the Colts. They have no games left against the AFC South. That is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, if they, if, if they beat the Titans and have swept that entire division, maybe we'll start talking about them as a better, a, a good team. I actually think they're a pretty good team. Well, so look, that line is six points, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's in Tennessee, of course, but that gives you a sense of where the market has Tennessee versus Cleveland. And Tennessee has looked solid. I mean, to be fair, they looked better than I expected them to look, but they're, you know, they're a top 10 team. They're not like a top five and they're a six point favorite. They're a top them. five team in the AFC, I think. I mean, not in the, across the entire NFL, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, I would put them just below Pittsburgh, Kansas city and, uh, I don't know, maybe Baltimore. I, I mean, who knows? The, the other game that has a lot of playoff implications is the Rams at the Cardinals this week. That's yeah. clearly a game that will, you know, winner of that game uh, has big implications for. I think I think the Rams are seven and four, and the Cardinals are maybe six and five now. So that's a big tiebreaker game. The one game I would watch out for this week. Let's talk about that one for a second. So it's the Rams in Arizona. I, every, every every NFC West game, a t- game I think is is interesting. I, I that, that's the, that's the best. Uh, that's the most fun division in in, in football, as far I, as I'm I, concerned. I agree inter- entirely. Give us any two of those, and they're fun to watch. But the Cardinals is it just that I, did I get too excited about them? Is it did I get too caught up in their style of play? Because I'm sitting here surprised that they it just feels intuitively that they shouldn't be three point underdogs against the Rams at home, but they're three point underdogs against the Rams at home. So that's not that far off from Massey Peabody, but I think I've just been kind of swept up in the Kyler Murray excitement. God help me. And I've, I've missed, I've missed their overall quality. And maybe, and maybe I'm also underestimating the Rams. I mean, Massey Peabody loves the Rams. We have them number three in the whole NFL and only just, you know, two points behind the chiefs, for example. So, I mean, the Rams just lost that game against San Francisco. Goff turned the ball over 16 times. I mean, do we believe in the Rams? I believe in the Rams. I think they have a very strong team, and I agree with you. They did everything they could to lose that game, and they were winning that game up till the end of that. They came back and took the lead. Yeah, if Goff hadn't turned the ball over a bazillion times, the Rams, I think, easily win. Not easily. They probably win that game by 7 to 10 points. And so I think that's as badly as the Rams can play in that game. Eric, we cut you off earlier. There's another game out there you're excited about. Well, I'm going to make a prediction right now. I, I don't know – just a prediction. I think Atlanta is going to beat New Orleans at home. 
Okay. You got swept up in that, that, what was it? A 43 point shellacking that the Falcons. Oh my did God. Yeah. Uh, now most of that was kind of, you know, second half slop time or something, but, but still you just don't see those kinds of spreads in the NFL very often. Tell us about New Orleans. So they're hosting, they're hosting uh, Atlanta's hosting New Orleans. They're three point underdogs and you're calling them, you know, possible winners here. What's going on? Well, I just think Atlanta's had, a, you know, they're not, a, they're a better than a, you know, I guess their records, what, four and seven. You remember they lost that crazy game to the Cowboys and never should have mm-hmm. lost. They lost that game to the Bears at the end. They probably never should have lost. They lost that game to the Lions. They could easily be six and five right now. And we'd be talking about the Falcons entirely differently. I mean, they beat the Raiders last week. They lost to the Saints the week before by 15. They beat the Broncos, beat the Panthers. They beat the Vikings this year. I think they're just a better team than. But they're uh, not a better team than New Orleans. I, I mean, I no, guess you're arguing no. that they're not. A, even at their best, they're not a better team than New Orleans, right? No, but I, I think what happens is I'm not a believer in, you know, people see New Orleans winning big. Ta- did you see Taysom Hill's numbers yeah. last week? Right. I mean, he didn't really have to do much, right? I mean, they, 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 you know, after after they'd scored one touchdown, that game was essentially over. But, but you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily all that sold on Taysom Hill or you know whatever weird combination of Taysom Hill, uh, Jameis Winston, um, is going to be involved in that game. So I don't necessarily think that it's going to be New Orleans' offense. But I feel like New Orleans' defense is legitimate. I mean, they obviously did not have much of a test again last week, but in prior weeks, I think they're one of the top five defenses in the. NFL, right? So this is a fun. This is a fun game. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna tee this one up as the most interesting game because I really like the argument. I, I like what you're saying and about the Saints. And we've been on the Saints, you know, all year. Of course, with that breeze, it's a different deal. But Atlanta, if you take Eric saying, look, they've got some good wins, they've got some good losses, is basically they've what he's saying. Good losses, and, yeah. and don't forget that they turned over their coach midseason. And so, if you want to make a non-stationarity argument, you could say we're looking at a different team now than we were at the beginning of the year. And maybe they're just performing at a better level. I also think it goes back to the original point we made. Let's make Taysom Hill beat us in the air. Make him beat us in the air. The guy last week, I just looked up his numbers, was like 7 of 16 for 75 yards, no touchdowns, one pick, hit a QBR of 33. I mean, I agree with Shane. He didn't have have to throw the ball. Make him beat you in the air. Let's see what happens. That's great. It brings us all the way back to where we started in this NFL conversation. So, uh, you know, that's the way the NFL tends to play it. They understand players' weaknesses, and they try to exploit them, and defenses over time figure that out. It would be surprising if Atlanta didn't tee it up that way. So I would say that's one of the most interesting sets we have for the NFL in a, in a few weeks. And, again, we have, we have games from Wednesday to Tuesday to watch. All right, guys, what about on the college side of things? Where are you on that? Anything catch, especially over, you know, Thanksgiving weekend is always a fun football weekend. I was with my family out in West Texas, the same group in the same house as I was in for the pick six game back whenever Auburn and Alabama played. And we were reliving that a little bit. It was good fun. So anything catch your eye on college football over the weekend? Well, all my doomsday scenarios went away. No, when I, I was hoping true. for Northwestern. Uh, Northwestern, I had gone to the – Big Ten championship game against potentially beating Ohio State. And, you know, that's not when I mean, Northwestern still could, but that, that that was a game I watched. And, um, no, they're terrible. They didn't look good. I, th- I think you still have – there's still a doomsday scenario in play, which is that new Ohio, Ohio State, due to COVID, does not actually get to play 
enough games to qualify for its championship and that they're out, right? There wouldn't necessarily be out that it's, it's doomsday and that it would complicate things dramatically because the, the, the CFP isn't restricted from picking them. Right. So, so they would send out the big 10 championship and then the playoff committee would have to decide whether they. But, but, but okay. The like let, 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 it, let's say Ohio state doesn't play another game. This, well, so do, the, do they still get in? Do you think? Maybe not with that few wins. But so, for example, even if, I mean, look, they're talking right now about playing this weekend, and so they're not out of it yet. But even mm-hmm. if they are out of the Big Ten championship, there's nothing that would keep them. Remember, the Big Ten is doing this saying, this really cool thing at the end of the year, where they have the championship between the number one in the West and number one in the East. But they're going to play it all the way down the slate, where second number two in the East plays number two in the West, et cetera, which is That's awesome. fantastic. And so yeah. there's nothing that says they can't play that. So Ohio State would probably be relegated to being the number two team out of the East. They would get another game. I, you know, I think one of the things we've learned from the playoff committee to the extent that form holds this year, and this is a really weird year. One of the things we've learned is they've been pretty good about going to who they believe is best and rewarding best over deserving kind of a, to a, to a surprising extent, I would say. And I think that would bode well for Ohio state, as long as they don't sit out too many more of the games, but Eric, you know, on the, on the doomsday thing, you've got another card you like to play it's not doomsday but it is group of five yep. and you've i think you know even though your doomsday scenarios are dwindling away your group of five scenario almost kind of in corresponding probability is increasing because cincinnati is one of only a handful of teams that have a realistic chance of making the playoffs now i mean it's it's really we're getting down to just a few teams that might be selected for the four playoff spots and cincinnati's one of them yeah, I mean, I just have to believe just because the number of games they've played, you know, if they end up going whatever, I, I, I know, I know, I know that they're nine and zero right now. Um, maybe they end up eleven and zero. I don't know how many games they have left, but if they end up eleven and zero, it's going to be and and in the top five, it's going to be pretty hard not to take. I think there's seven right now. I, I, I like it. Here's a, here's a question for you. You know, this was something that was suggested by some analysts before the season that if a team is able to make it through during COVID, undefeated playing a full schedule, should they receive a little bit of an extra boost just for pulling that off? I think that argument's even stronger now, having seen the wreckage around the country and so many teams unable to do that. It makes it even more impressive when teams are able to. Now, to be fair, every time someone loses a game, it isn't necessarily because of their own COVID cases. Sometimes it's the other side. But most teams that have been hurt have been hurt in both directions. So since he – I mean – I'm, I've gotten to where I'm really pulling for them because I'm super impressed with not only their performance on the field, but their ability to play a full slate. Yeah, let's just talk through the other teams real quick. You can kind of slot Alabama in. I mean, we, this thing with Alabama the last few years has been, even if they lose a game, they're probably still going to make it because they've been so impressive. And our friend Bill Connolly is doing a nice job of talking about how impressive they have been offensively. You know, they've always been such a defensive juggernaut, but they've really, well, really stepped it up. Yeah, one game. I don't think if they lost to LSU, which is not happening, but if they lost oh. to LSU and they lost in the SEC championship game, yeah, they could be out. But yeah, they're not that, losing to LSU. Those things aren't happening. So you slot them in, and you slot the winner of Clemson-Notre Dame in, and That's those true. two slots are done. And then you've got, I think, basically four teams for the other maybe five teams. So if Notre Dame loses, they've still got a pretty good argument. They've got one loss all season. It was, it would have been to Clemson and they will also have a a victory over Clemson. They'll have a victory over North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So they're, 
looking not bad. The what about a what about a Florida? If Florida loses to Alabama in the title game, then they'll have two losses. You not great. Take a two-loss Florida over an undefeated Cincinnati. Okay, so 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 give me both. No, so assume if Clemson loses to Notre Dame a second time, then they're not going to get in. But if Notre Dame loses, they got a pretty good argument. You've got Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and you're looking for somebody else. Florida would have taken a second loss, and you're going to have to choose. This is what you have to choose from: an underplayed Ohio State, a one-loss didn't make the SEC final Texas A&M or an undefeated Cincinnati with the full slate. Those are all flawed, but that's, those, that's literally your choice set. And that's after accepting a one-loss Notre Dame who lost the ACC championship. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's really interesting. One, it's hard, and it's really interesting. And I, you know, I think the committee would probably go to Ohio State in those situations. They've really shown themselves that way over time. But Cincinnati's going to have a good case. Yeah, I mean, I guess Cincinnati, that that says to me that Cincinnati's best case would be to cheer, obviously, for um, Clemson against Notre Dame, because that probably that would you you, you think that Notre Dame, even if it loses to Clemson, is still probably going to go. Yeah, I think it's the other way around. I think Notre Dame. They want Notre Dame to beat. Oh, they'd want Notre Dame to beat Clemson. If Clemson has two losses to Notre Dame, they're out. Yeah, Yeah, I think. And Notre Dame, they're going to take one of the two of them, but they don't want them to take both. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And the other thing to hope for is this is such a beauty contest. It feels like it's even more of a beauty contest than, than usual because of how less data. Apple's yeah. Less games, so, right? So much yeah. less data. So yeah, Ohio state has, you know, they came out looking gangbusters. They barely got by Indiana and then they have a couple of games in, in front of them, which Ohio state are we going to see? Are we going to see an impressive team or are we going to see a barely getting by team? And if it's the latter, then you're going to have a better case for somebody like Cincinnati. And, and similarly, Cincinnati needs to do their best and, and really look good. They need to draw a good opponent. What are Ohio State's uh, coming up opponents? I know Michigan's one of them, so it's going to be relatively – I mean, how impre- – like, are they going to have to – for that to be an impressive win for Ohio State, is it going to have to be like 60 nothing or something like yeah, that? Yeah, because these teams – I think they have Michigan State this weekend mm-hmm. if, they managed, if they managed to actually play the game, who hadn't done much this year until they, they have Michigan in the West final game. Yeah. yeah. And then they'll have, say, by the way, I know this doesn't, you know, it's sort of an arbitrary cutoff, but if you consider top 25 teams, Cincinnati wins its final game of the season. I'm pretty sure it'll be the only team in college football this year that has three top 25 wins. There you go. There you go. Nice, Eric. Good research, Eric. Way to go, man. Yeah. Nice. So, um, well, we're kind of skipping past some of the factors that contributed to this, but I don't know if you caught that late night Pac-12. Pac-12 has always given us good late night football. That Oregon State over Oregon at the end was crazy as it always is, but that kind of blew up the, the Pac-12. Big 12 blown up a long time ago. The Big 10 trying to blow themselves up. Um, one other note on the college football front, the um, two major blue blood programs might both be in the coaching market this year. Texas, everybody believes Herman's gone now. Hmm. He's at the end of his fourth year. He lost to Iowa State at home two years in a row. People are frustrated with him on multiple levels. It looks like Texas is in the job market. Michigan, people were wondering, you know, yeah. with every loss, they've begun wondering whether Jim Harbaugh would go, and now they go, they lose again, and people are thinking that they might be in the job market. So um, coaching carousel is always a fun season, but it's unusual to have two such blue blood programs in the market at the same time. And It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. The, the rumors, of course, are that Texas is looking at Urban Meyer trying to coax him off of the sidelines, mm-hmm. um, off of the coaching, of, of the TV sidelines, that is. 
Most of um, the rumors I've heard on Harbaugh's side is that he might make the transition back to the NFL potentially, where he has certainly had a lot of more recent success. Well, it's not he wouldn't, he wouldn't have to move very far to go teach, uh, coach the Detroit Lions, for example. True. Do you, but, I mean, is he that attractive a, a candidate after, after this much time away? And it's interesting. You know, it's interesting that some guys do better at one level than the other. Mm-hmm. But Matt Campbell is uh, probably the hottest young prospect in the country. He's the Iowa State coach and a Midwest guy. And people are talking about him as the leading candidate for Michigan. It'd be exciting to see him, who's done so well in an under-resourced program, get a chance at something like Michigan. Okay, in case uh, you want something other than the games to pay attention to, those are a couple of fun issues to pay attention to over the next couple of weeks. Guys, that has been the second quarter and the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do this every week, coming to you via Zoom since March. Have the whole crew in here, Shane Jensen, Audi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in too if you want to reach out via Twitter at WMoneyball or email moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Rolling into our second open segment, all sports available there was one more football note we wanted to catch coming out of Q2. COVID impact is not just on players, but entire teams have been kicked out now. What do you, what do you think about the Niners having to vacate Northern California? I just think it, it leads to an interesting analytics discussion, which is um, I know Massey Peabody has adjusted, and as have many people adjusted, home field advantage this year because now there aren't as many fans or no fans. As a matter of fact, what's nice about it is if there is if there's any nice thing that comes out of COVID, is that we actually don't have just full stadium, zero stadium. We actually have a continuum of values, which is always nice to see. It gives you more statistical power and allows you to see possible non-linearities in the effect of the home crowd. But now we have the other dimension, which is we have the 49ers because of the increased COVID rate at Santa Clara where they play. They're not even allowed to play at home the next two weeks. So now they're the home team but in Arizona stadium. So then what does home field mean? Does it, you know, people have said, I know Adi and we've talked about it. Is it the home cooking? Is you get you sleep in your own bed? Is it the the refs? Well, now (laughs) maybe that we have two of the dimensions we have, well, you were at home, but no fans. And now we have, you're not at home and you don't have fans. So that's Mm -hmm. starting to get to almost filling the entire two by two matrix. So it's interesting from that statistical perspective. It is, it is important to point out in football, I believe the home field advantage has diminished pretty steadily over the years. Um, it's now about two, two and a half points, two points down mm-hmm. from maybe three, three and a half points some time ago. That home field advantage overall has diminished. We, we've talked about this in our show in the past um, from, you know, sky high rates in, in basketball, although basketball seems to still be pretty high. Um, but the, all the rates have gone down. I, have, I guess I haven't kept up with the literature. Do you, what, what are the hypotheses for why it would have diminished in football? Part of it is travel. People think. Yeah, I, I, I would. I guess that would be my guess that travel is just a little bit easier these days, and so therefore it's not well, as actually. Only. Also, they've they've done. I mean, this is what sleep researchers and uh, training analytics people have done. They actually don't. They don't fly out early. They mm-hmm. fly out as late as possible instead right. of as early as possible. And this is actually a, a finding that they have pretty convinced is the best approach for adjustment. And they also are pretty good with their circadian clocks. Um, so they they make sure that the uh, 
that their clocks are, are set early enough so that they're particularly when they travel to the West Coast from the East Coast or vice versa, um, that you're playing in a, in a, in a circadian position that's, uh, that's uh, best for your performance. Right. So they've gotten smarter about it and um, there's more money involved. And so they can travel in better style. I mean, somebody was even arguing that this thing really started coming down. It ties almost exactly to when NBA teams started flying their own planes instead of lounging around airports late at night, waiting for things to come in. So there are a few different factors there, but Audi, I love the numbers that Audi ran last year showing this kind of monotonic drop over a long yeah, period. But no, actually the finding with the NFL, the NBA was, uh, was, was born out in the data. We discussed it. Um, it's hard to prove it, but it looks like it really accelerates just when they went from flying commercial to flying private. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, guys, the, the speaking same of thing for professors, by the way, whoever's yeah, funding yeah, yeah. our travel, yeah, same thing. Teach, you know, yeah, we, that's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> On the basketball front, the single non-football event that most caught my eye was um, our university of San Francisco Don's upsetting number four, four Virginia. They made the front page of ESPN with an 8-0 run late in the game to trip up. They said it's the biggest victory by USF since 1981. And, of course, we, we like those guys because they're coached by Todd Golden, who we've had on the show before, and they're very analytics forward. And by that, I mean uh, creative and uh, data-based, and they practice differently, and it's all about using data as an edge. And um, they're, they're living it more, more fully, I think, than almost anybody else. So it's great to see them have success. We're going to replay an interview we did with Golden about a year ago. We're going to re- replay that here in the fourth quarter of our show. What else, guys? What else around the world of sports? Well, I, you know, I did watch the Tyson-Roy Jones fight. Yeah. Did you? I did. Did you want to see what it'd be like to a bunch of guys our age out there in the ring? I did. I did. Um, and just for the spectacle of it and everything else, it was a, it was a very entertaining fight. I mean, um, so now I've gotten the answer, though, to a question I think I asked last week. No, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones could not beat the 100th ranked fighter in the world that was age 25 or 30. There's no chance that they could. They just didn't. It was about and this is something we've talked about. They just don't have the endurance. Yeah, I mean, they, they fought eight two minute rounds, not three minute rounds. And by the fifth round, both of them looked like they were just done punching. They were just, they were just done. <laughs> and they were, I'm, sure, I'm sure they were pacing themselves as well. And even despite that, I mean, I don't, I've barely boxed, but we used to box a little bit when we were kids. And it was just amazing how exhausted you were immediately. I mean, the conditioning required for boxing is extraordinary. So that part was interesting. And the other part is, you know, now that it was successful from lots of them, let me just say, no one thought they embarrassed themselves. They thought it was an interesting fight. Let me just say also, by the way, eventually, maybe as Adi's talked about automatic uh, balls and strikes in the, you know, we've, in the uh, MLB, we've talked about it in tennis now. In a lot of tournaments, they have no refs. So the fight was ruled a draw. But let me just tell you, the CompuBox numbers, which is the actual number of times fighter A hit fighter B, Tyson won 67 to 33. He won hard punches like 50 to 25, and the fight was a draw. Now, I watched the fight. It was no draw. So there might be a time, not surprisingly, where maybe boxing is not determined by subjective judges in some way. Because I think a lot of people are also, except for maybe they want to have Tyson Jones too, why is this fight possibly a draw? 
Well, and hasn't Olympic boxing gone to more of an actual kind of quantitative scoring, Absolutely. like uh, like in a relatively objective scoring system? I mean, I don't know. That I, I, there, there might still be arbitrariness in what they call a hit and stuff like that. I don't know. No, that's a great point, uh, Shane. They, they actually, in, in Olympic boxing, it's entirely determined by uh, electronic scoring and punches. Yeah. Which is, I mean, also has the advantage. I mean, oh my goodness, that's much better data, right? Than what you'd get out of professional boxing as What's well. Actually, now, here's what's going to be interesting from an analytics perspective. So I didn't realize that Mike Tyson was planning on a Champions League. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean in just boxing. Like, let me give you an example. You guys may not remember this. I don't know if you guys were big swim fans. But do you guys remember maybe 10 years ago when Michael Phelps swam against Mark Spitz? I, yes. re- I remember hearing about that, but that was kind of silly, wasn't it? What what happened? Well, Spitz got a little bit of a head start. You know, like he got, I forget how like many. Like two seconds. pool lengths? Yeah. No, 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 no. They only did a fifth. They did whatever one length of the pool. Yeah. But you could imagine having, I also remember, again, you guys not remember this. I remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar playing a one-on-one against Julius Irving. So you could imagine all kinds of sports where you have two people well past their prime competing against each other and i think there would actually be a lot of analytics interest like you know setting the hedge setting the the advantage yeah not only that but also seeing you know how which sports does do things not maybe decline as quickly like here's an example i think if you could see phil mickelson right now playing against bernard bernard longer in 18 hole match you might watch that longer Mm -hmm. 63 mickelson's 50 but you wouldn't watch necessarily a 50-year-old boxer again. You're not going to watch Mike Tyson against George Foreman, maybe. Let me, right let me, I mean, I love the, the, the hypothesis, but let me turn to swimming and talk about why it's difficult, at least with an Olympic-level sport. So the age gap between Phelps and, and Spitz is probably 20, 25 years at least. At uh, least. But what's interesting is, and I, this is something that I've tracked as a, as a former swimmer, and you know, Mark Spitz was the, ep- the, the pinnacle of, uh, of swimming um, you know, accomplishment, his world record times in 1972 or whatever it was, 72. wouldn't even be competitive in the women's side today. Is that right? right. Nope. I mean, Super it's not clear. I mean, it's not even close. So the the level of competition has just so far exceeded. Forget about age age diminishment. <laughs> this is uh this is just an incomparable difference. And I think there's been a dramatic intensification of accomplishments in the Olympic sports over the last say 50 years, but swimming, um, you know, uh, one of the few sports that hasn't seen it is uh, of course, uh, um, you know, is sprinting and um, they've, they've kind of plateaued um, and have been sort of since the you know eighties or so they haven't had that kind of, dramatic growth but in swimming it's gone well, well i mean one counterbalance to that is just the, the extent to it i mean part part of that is probably motivated towards you know like it's because of training and just like you know better better athletes these days but training also does help aging curve you know we've, yes, we've talked yeah. a lot about how it, it um kind of you know technology and all kinds of like advanced in training help kind of like essentially slow the effects of aging um so i wonder if you had like a that 20 year gap like back 50 years ago, if you had two swimmers with that 20 yeah, year yeah. gap, yeah, it would have been worse yeah. than it would be now. Guys, speaking of these kind of um, the Grizzlies versus uh, Lions uh, exhibitions, what do you think about what's going on with golf these days? So Mickelson and Charles Barkley, of all people, just teamed up to play golf together. And now there's going to be a tournament where 
famous players are playing with their kids. I mean, what is going, is this interesting and what's going on here? Is this because Barkley was calling out Tom Brady when Tom Brady was playing with Mickelson? That one exhibition? That's partly what it was. Um, Also Barkley has had historically a horrible swing. Um, (laughs) It was Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley against Steph Curry and Peyton Manning. And just, you know, Steph Curry's a scratch golfer pretty much. Peyton Manning shoots lower than 80. Um, But here's the difference. And this is what they've always said about golf. To score well in golf, you need one good golf shot every hole. Well, I'm pretty sure Phil Mickelson's going to, on most holes, is going to hit one good golf shot. So I was interested in it. Could, could someone like Barkley, who shoots like 100, 110, but you put him with one of the top golfers of all time, I think he's going to beat Curry and and uh, did he did he continue? Yeah, I, I was going to say like uh, on the on the surface, without knowing the other athletes like golf games, this seems really unfair that only one of the four is an actual <laughs> professional golfer. But you're saying they paired him with the obviously worst, Correct. of the amateur golfers, and also it led to strategy. So Barkley almost never hit a uh, driver or even a wood off the tee. He would hit an iron off the tee to get into play. He also played, let me just say, from the shorter tees. Barkley played from the shorter tees. Mickelson, Curry, and Manning played from the longer tees. Was it best ball or was it? It was a strange mixed format. They would both drive the ball off the tee. Then they would pick whichever shot they wanted to play and hit alternate shot from there. Alternate shot. So Barkley did have to play. He did. As a matter of fact, he was hit his chip. (laughs) No, no. His chips were fantastic. There were probably half the holes where he had to hit the ball from 150 yards and in. Okay. Uh, Cause like he'd be in the woods and Mickelson would be in the middle of the fairway, 300 yards out. And so, yeah, you're not going to play the ball from the woods. Even if Mickelson hits it, you're still not going to play that ball. Um, and it was just, it was just a, I thought it was an interesting display where I was thinking I could go out there with Mickelson and I think <laughs> would have won. I do. Cause I, I think I could contribute as much as Barkley did yeah, one good golf so. shot a hole. Well, you say his handicap was like 30 or 40. I feel like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the range I'm in. Okay, but hold on, hold on. What about the pressure? What about playing with those guys and playing on TV? Like, honestly, honestly. So you've got a, you've got a better game than Barkley. I don't doubt that at all. But how do you think you'd handle the pressure? I mean, you, we've all played golf with a little bit of pressure and felt the consequence, and it's nothing compared to real-world pressure. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's laughable how bad most of us would be under real pressure in golf. Yeah, I, I guess I feel like I would maybe be resistant because, I mean, I could only exceed people's expectations, right? It's just like this random scrub. Whereas Barkley, I think, actually, like, you know, has a reputation on the line or something like that. He actually, you know, has respect well, among people to lose. Well, here's another version of the question. I wonder if his history of performance at the highest level readies him for pressure mm. or another version Probably. of it. Maybe he doesn't care. He doesn't feel he doesn't pressure. He's got all this other credibility in the world. But I bet he does care. I bet he does. And I and I and I also bet that there's some transference of that performance under pressure thing across sports. That's probably um, true. So let me just say the other thing in golf that's going on, they've had this actually for about 20 years now. It, they used to call it the father-son, but that's sexist. And so sometimes women play, sometimes it's a player and their father, uh, as opposed to a player and their son. The thing I love about this golf event is that you get people from all generations, like for example, Gary Player is playing. Gary Player, he's 85. He's playing with his grandson. Um, <laughs> Tiger Woods is playing with his 11-year-old son, Charlie. Heck, 11-year-old Tiger was winning U.S. Amateurs on that. <laughs> Annika Sorenstam, the greatest women's player cool. of all time, is playing with her father. Oh, cool. Bernard Longer is playing with his son, 
Greg Norman. You know, is his son like 45? <laughs> yeah, you just look at the list of players. And to me, again, the, the motto is if you only have to hit one good golf shot a hole, and sometimes maybe the 11 year old or the 85 year old will contribute, to me, that's interesting. This is Coliseum interesting. This is Coliseum stuff here, man. Yeah, I cool. Guess, I guess it, it is, is Tiger's son pretty good. He's very, very good, apparently. So apparently he's won some junior tournaments and there's just, you know, when we're off the air, go type in Charlie Woods golf swing and you'll be like, they may be playing his ball some of the time. Wow. Hey, this, you've got, you said David Duvall is playing. So what's the state of David Duvall's golf game? I mean, that, that's, that guy, that's like a whole thing, him, because he was so good and then it just went away. I mean, does he still play golf, really? Yeah, so David Duval, for people that don't know, was the number one player in the world before Tiger Woods came on the scene. And he, um, he doesn't play much anymore. He sometimes plays a senior event here and there. He's, he's actually the, one of the lead commentators for the Golf Channel, so I see him all the time. Um, he just had all kinds of personal and other kinds of issues that removed him from the game of golf. No, so I, I think he's mostly a... I'll call it in quotes, a recreational player who happened to have one time been the number one player in the world. But yeah, he plays with his son and I'm also a big David Duval fan. So yeah, I always root sure. for him to do well in this for event. Sure, for sure. You've got, I hear that Furyk is playing too. How entertaining would it be if Furyk's kid or sibling or father had the same loopy swing that he did? I would love, I would pay for that to be the Also, game. you want to hear, you want to, you want to see someone that's really interesting. John Daly who goes by Big John, is playing with his son, Little John, who just, I forget where his son's going to college now, wherever John Daly went. And his son, like, is the old John Daly. He can hit, like, 390 off the no. tee. So oh that'll be, that, this, I mean, look at all these interesting players. I mean, this is can fascinating. You, can you imagine being the son of John Daly? I'm going to go home and light a candle and pray for the son of John Daly right now. I didn't know he existed until just this moment, and I'm already worried about him. <laughs> It'll be a fun event. I'll be watching. All right, guys, uh, what else we got going on? We got NBA is like going to happen in 15 minutes, which is just completely absurd. Uh, are we ready? Are we ready to talk NBA? Yeah, here's the thing that surprised me. First of all, the, the preseason starts next week. So that's already shocking enough. Um, but then I went to ESPN and I looked at the predictions for the season. And um, the part that shocked me was not that the Lakers have the highest predicted win percentage. That doesn't surprise me. But that, remember, they're only playing 72 games. But if you translated it to an 82-game season, the Lakers would be predicted at 50 wins. And that's the highest. I, I, I didn't get it. So, so you're why? saying they're, they're almost like it's too regressed to the mean? Correct. For, for, for kind of historic, like historically. I'm, at, I'm even, Shane, I'm looking at the distribution of the maximum. There's yeah. probably never been an NBA season. Never where the highest win percentage is 0.615, which is what they're forecasting for the Lakers this year. So I think just looking at the maximum compared to the whole league, there's never been a year where the maximum number of wins. Eric, you, you wouldn't want the highest predicted team percentage to match the highest historical. No, no, no. I, I want to look at the mean of the distribution of the maximum. And I'm saying this number would probably be in the, First percentile. It would probably be the lowest. If we took the last yeah, fifty is years, that fair, is that even a fair comparison? I mean, sure. we know that the real, we know the realization is going to be far above the an optimal prediction for any given team. No, no, no. I'm, I'm asking. I'm saying a different thing. So 
I'm saying, let's say we took the last 50 years in the NBA, okay, and we computed the win percentage of the best team in the league in each of those 50 yeah. years, and we took a histogram of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It would never be 61% ever. That's always going to be the but lowest. That's, not, that's going to be too high. I mean, it, the 615 is going to be too low. So already, if I just put a prior, I don't want to put a prior on the Lakers. I want to put a prior on the maximum. Sure of each season, and I'm going to use the historical data to do it, it would Fine. shrink me way above 0.615. Yeah, but, but Eric, take, take, the, take the implied win percentages for all the win totals in, in these posted odds right now, okay? And then run a simulation with those as the, as the actual win percentages, and the team with the highest number of wins is going to be much higher than whatever number you than 0.61 is the claim. Yeah, if you simulated from that, obviously someone's going to get a positive residual, and right. so I, that's a good. That's, that's, I even think that would. It's good. That's a good amendment. I still think that's too low. You know, if you're, yeah, I still think that's too low. When we typically have this argument in baseball, it's because you know we're like, oh, well, you never even if you would never predict a, a particular team like the Yankees to be over a hundred wins because but you would be pretty confident there would be maybe like a, a team over a hundred wins, a team, you know, I mean, I think in baseball, you've got the extra stochasticity that it's even harder to predict who that top team's going to be. I mean, you know, if, if, if you told me remove like all the uncertainty and just told me that the top team next year was definitely going to be the Lakers. I, I, I'd be kind of comfortable with that. Right. So we don't have that additional yeah, exactly. uncertainty. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's a little bit apples and oranges, and but I, I so now I'm intrigued whether it's actually truly low for the historically great teams. I guess that's the question I would want to know is if you go back and look at the Golden State times, what in what in you know when they were w- winning three in a row or whatever, what implied win percentage did the win totals have for that that team? Mm-hmm. And and it may be above 0.61, but I suspect it's not. Well, here's a calculation I just did, which sort of justifies what you said, Cade. So I took I just rounded it to 0.6. Let's say you flipped a. 0.6 sided coin 72 times mm-hmm. and looked mm-hmm. at the distribution of wins. And so yep. the standard error of that is 0.6 times one minus 0.6 divided by 72 roughly. And so if you flipped it, it's about 0.05. So that would say a 95% interval around the Lakers wins would have them somewhere between a 50% win percentage and a 70% win mm-hmm. percentage, right. which would translate to about 56, 57 wins, which I still think is low yes. for, the, for the maximum. But you're right. It, it, there's uncertainty around it. And that's, it's roughly in the 5 to 6% range of the standard deviation. Got it. It's, I like the way you did that. It's, you didn't, it, rather than running the simulation, you calculated the standard error and gave yourself a bracket. That was a quick and quick and clean way to do it. Um, guys, uh, more next sport, next season kind of questions for you and a segue into a place I know you all like to be, which is baseball. Did you see this poll that Nate Silver put up on uh, anticipated attendance at opening day in April? So this is kind of project. This is back to COVID. What are the consequences in April for COVID on baseball? So if you had to say how many of the, how many baseball teams we have now, 30, how many of the 30 baseball teams will have at least 20% of their fans in attendance on opening day in April on scheduled opening day in April. This was, this was Nate's poll. 
it's kind of, to me, it's a sobering, it's like, oh gosh, we're not out of the woods yet. We're going to talk about opening day consequences. I guess mm-hmm. so. So I'm curious what you guys think. He put it into four well, buckets, zero to 15, 16 to 20, 21 to 25, or 26 and, or more are going to have at least 20%. Interesting buckets um, because I would put, I would degrade uh, uh, zero to 15 into two. If you yeah. ask me, because I think it's, I think it's very unlikely that we'll have none. And I think it's also unlikely we'll have more than 15. So I feel like zero to 15 puts them too close mm-hmm. together. Um, how many of the football teams are, are already filling up 20% right now? It's a great question and a noble question, and I have no sense of it. I mean, it's less, see, it's less the last couple of weeks than it was before. Like, we're kind of, you know, yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. Past by April, we expect to be, I'd expect to be things improved relative to now, regardless of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I, would, I would be guessing somewhere just a little bit short of 15, but north of 10 would be my guess. Okay, interesting. Eric? Yeah, so I have a different way of thinking about it. I don't know if this is the right way to think about it. Suppose I told you, and this is the, you know, the distributions are of warp speed said most people by June that want to have a vaccine will be able to get one. Mm-hmm. If you knew that the vaccine was coming, why would you rush putting fans in the seats for opening day? Like, why not? Like, it's different than when the NFL season started in September, where you knew it was 10 months off. But if you know it's going to be 30 days, 45 days, six days, why not hold off? Don't put fans in the seats. And by June 15th, maybe you're going to have 50% attendance, 75% attendance, because everyone will have had a vaccine. So I'm going the under, because I think people are going to be forward looking and say, why take the risk now if we know the vaccine will be widely distributed in 45 days? But Eric, does it really feel risky for a team to do that? They don't really bear the kind. It's not not risky for a fan. I don't think they care. I'd go tomorrow. Yeah, no, and I'm going to take the over only because I think the dynamics are going to be more that, you know, I I mean, I'm hopeful by April that, you know, I mean, I probably – who knows if I'll have the vaccine by then, but a lot enough people will have had the vaccine to fill a stadium – um, and, and certainly we'll hopefully have had va- enough people who have had the vaccine where the rates have really con- in the population have gone down where we can kind of be a little bit more risk tolerant on big group gatherings, even for, I mean, I, I don't even know if baseball st- uh, teams are going to make the d- kind of evaluation that you have to be vaccinated, for example, to go to the game. Right. No, they're I mean, not going to do it at all. I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to give it. are not going to do it. We're never going to ask yeah. anyone. We have, we have, we're not that kind of uh, penetration in terms yeah. of society and yeah. So just let me give you the report back. So Adi, you're exactly right. Most of the probability, most of the responses stack up in that first category, zero to 15, with about 51, 52% of people responding that they thought it would be that low. And then 20% at the 16 to 20, almost nobody, 21, 25. And then another 20% on the optimistic side, Mm. 20% of respondents thought that 26 or more of the teams, remember the threshold here is only 20% of the fans in attendance. So it's a relatively low threshold, but it's just, it's sobering to me to reach out to April and still think about these consequences. But we, we, I think that's realistic. Just to say for the NFL, by the way, at least if, assuming being able to buy tickets is a barometer of the 15 games being played this weekend, seven you can buy tickets for, eight you cannot. So that okay. must, I mean, if that's so roughly 50% yeah. of the NFL teams are allowing some fans yeah. at the stadium. I think by, 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 uh, by spring in an outdoor stadium, um, baseball will be having fans. They had fans at the World Series. Um, Things will be different, but I, I expect it to, to be happening. I, I, I know I'm teaching in person next, uh, next semester. I think that is going full speed ahead. So I'm looking for that ba- vaccine. I want to be a frontline person, right? 
Adi, we're going to see, you know, let's wait and see what happens over the next couple of months, um, whether that goes ahead. I hope it does, but there's a lot of uncertainty yet. Guys, before we leave this quarter, speaking of baseball, I know it doesn't take much to get your attention, and they opened Hall of Fame voting is what I understand. And this thing, I mean, how long does this last? How long does Hall of Fame voting last? few months. I mean, the thing about it is you get all these ballots that come in and then they get tracked. So people are, they don't have to publicize the, their ballots, but they do. And then you can make forecasts of who's going to make it and kind of watch along the way. There's obviously the late, the, the sealed ballots are the ones who aren't public tend to run one way. Um, and so it's an interesting forecast. It all sounds very familiar. <laughs> it is very familiar, but what's interesting, I like to, what I like to do is tra- track who's coming up each season. And that really, um, and this year, um, it's, it's amazing because we really don't have anyone who's even forecasted to have a 50% chance of making it by their end of their 10. So the, the best candidates are uh, Hudson and Burley. And the problem with these, these guys, what's that? What do you think? They're not going to make it or no, they're not even close to, they're not even close to 50%. They're, so essentially nobody coming up this season, a new is, has it even a chance, which means you get, you get to open up your ballot, right? You only get to vote for um, 10 people on your ballot. Um, maybe it's fewer than that. now. They've, ch- they've changed that. And so there, you got the steroids guys, you got the, you got the bonds, you got, you got Clemens. You also have Schilling and who's getting close to the end without anyone like Jeter or someone that you got to give a vote to, because how can you not? Or Mariana Rivera, that gives you an open ballot, an open, an open slot. So we're going to see some of these guys who've been hanging in there, I think across the line this year. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. I, have a difference, I have a difference of opinion. Um, I think uh, you have a, you know, this is what, you know, we call a spike at zero model. Mm-hmm. I think there's a large spike of people that will never vote for Clemens, Bonds, possibly Gary Sheffield, Sammy Sosa. I certainly would. Sure, put they're it. gone. But Schilling is, is came in at 70. No, 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 no. I didn't say Schilling. I, I was yeah, your spike Schilling. is specifically the steroid users. Yeah, steroid. I'm talking about the steroid users. Yeah. It's really whether the, that spike. I, I agree that it's the big question is really uh, is the proportion of people who will never vote, vote for steroid users greater than 25 percent. Right, right. Because obviously, bond, yeah, if you yeah, take yeah, steroids yeah. out of the equation, of course, Bonds and Clemens are like, you know, would have been in on the first ballot. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a here's a question though. What maybe because I, you can we can start talking about gradations, but don't you agree if there had not been steroid usage, Sammy Sosa would be in the Hall of Fame? Oh, sure. Yeah. Why is, at, why is he at fourteen percent? Well, I, I think no. So I, 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 I do, I do, do disagree. I mean, I think at least, I mean, whether it's true or not, I think Sammy Sosa's actual totals are much more a function of steroid usage. Like if steroids didn't exist, I don't think Sammy Sosa would be in the Hall of Fame because I don't think Sammy Sosa would have hit nearly as many of those home runs, or or would be yeah, kind of, of have no, numbers that even, are Hall of Fame worthy. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't. Whereas, have- whereas I think Clemens and Bonds, I think, I mean, and again, this is not an. A calcul- you know, it's, it's hard to do this calculation, but I think Clemens and Bonds' career. All right, well, let me ask you the following. The is, I think even without the steroid kind Just of. quickly, let's say you had to pick one of the three. You have Bonds and Clemens. Do zero of them give it in, one or two? And do we all agree one is kind of incoherent? Like, why should one get in and not the other? Agreed. Right. I'm going to go with zero. I say two. But, I mean, it's kind of like it's 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 a – you know, our, our difference is not analytical. It's kind of just, you know, it's, yeah, it's philosophical. I, I, I'm going to make a, I'm going to say two as well. And one of the reasons why I think it's interesting is that I think there's the punishment is making them wait until the end, the, the last year. 
And I think there's a bunch of people who are just going to do it interest. at the last interest because, frankly, yeah. come on. Well, the last year is one more year. They have one more after this. That's right. This is kind of the this is kind of the baseball equivalent of the NFL draft. It's kind of the off season. Let's mm-hmm. turn it into a thing. We can do analytics on it, and it yep. kind of becomes its whole thing. And and maybe it maybe even to a non baseball addict, it's interesting at that level. All right, guys, that has been a third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. This is Business Radio. Business Radio. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is the fourth quarter. This is our interview segment. In honor of a big upset victory in NCAA men's basketball this past week, we're going to replay an interview we did about a year ago. Last November, we talked to Todd Golden, head coach of the University of San Francisco Don's basketball program. We talked to him because we've been, he, they caught our eye and, and we caught theirs, their advanced analytics supporters, practitioners, and they're really pushing the edge of what you can do to, to improve basketball performance. They live it, they practice it, they, they play it in games, and it's beginning to pay dividends for those guys. So we thought it'd be interesting to go back and hear Coach Golden talk about his team and his approach to analytics here in the wake of their big win over number four, Virginia, last week. Enjoy. In this half hour, we have Todd Golden from the University of San Francisco. He's the head coach out there for the basketball team. Those guys play in the West Coast Conference. You might know that conference because of Gonzaga, one of the winningest teams in in college basketball for the last 10 years or so. These guys have to face them every year. Todd's been on our show before, and we are delighted to have him back. Coach Golden, welcome back. Hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Good morning. We are very well. We're probably not as well as you. You started your season with the bang last night, did you not? <laughs> we uh, we did. We we had a you know we played Sonoma State, a good D two team out this way, and uh, obviously got off to a really good start, scoring 101 points last night. You doubled them up. You doubled them up. Was that a goal? 101 to 50. That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> it, it definitely was not uh, a goal that we put out at the beginning of the game. But we were uh, we have a pretty deep team, and we were able to play a lot of guys. And, uh, our guys have really enjoyed playing faster offensively this year, and obviously they took advantage of that last night. Well, tell us a little bit about that. We want to know what you're doing with your program. We we were super excited to talk about you last year to find out how aggressively you are pursuing a certain brand of basketball, and more importantly, a, a process, a way a way of coaching the team and developing the team, choosing who plays, all of these elements built around a philosophy. Can you can you tell us what you think the key elements are of that philosophy now, and how that has advanced? Over now, you're in the second year in the program. I imagine it's easier to to do what you consider to be foundational pieces, and now you can push on to advanced pieces. Yeah, uh, well, just to clarify, are you talking more in terms of building the program or like in game in terms of how we play? Let's take let's take both. Let's take both because I know I know sure. you're working on both. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'd say the biggest thing we've done differently this year as opposed to the past three uh, when Kyle Smith was head coach here was kind of in game how we are, you know, just. Uh, just kind of our playing style, so to speak. There's five areas um, that, that we're really just emphasizing uh, as we go into every game, and that's winning the transition battle, trying to score more points than the other team in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock. And then one area that, that's that been really unique that I think we're doing a really good job with is just our shot selection this year. Um, for example, last night against Sonoma State, we took, uh, I think, 73 shots over the course of the night, only one of those shots came outside the paint, 
and inside the three-point line. So that right. was something that was really, really good. <laughs> okay. And something that, you know, we were that we just really been emphasizing since the beginning of practice, and we've done a couple things to really stress that um, that we can kind of talk about a little more later. But then just the, the ones that are pretty basic but probably don't get uh, talked about enough, but just winning the rebounding battle, turnover battle, and then uh, getting to the line more than the other team. Those five things are, are really what we're stressing. And, uh, you know, we've had two closed-door scrimmages that we won, and then we won last night. And so I think our guys are, are really starting to understand it and uh, take pride in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's unpack a couple of those. The shot selection is something, you know, we've been talking about for a long time, the Maury Ball revolution. In fact, we, we know our sure. Princeton our Princeton coach around here has something like a 95% threshold for what he's looking for. He only wants 5% of the shots to not be either in the paint or behind the three-point line. You guys just crushed that number. One out of seven, three is even smaller. But we hear less about transition. We hear less about the first. I like this. It's not that you want to shoot quick. It's that you want to outscore them in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock, meaning I think that means you want to play aggressive defense as well. And maybe that fits really well with the transition philosophy. It, it, it's kind of a it's – a, it's actually tough, right, because you want to play super fast offensively. Um, it's, there's plenty of data that shows that when you attack in the first 10 seconds of the clock, you're going to shoot a higher percentage from the field, and a lot of that is because you're going against a defense that's not set. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Um, but on the flip side, you obviously – you don't want to let your opponent shoot in the first 10 seconds of the clock because then they're going to they're gonna have that same advantage. So we really try to stress playing fast offensively, but then on the defensive end, we're, we're trying to make them use clock. We're trying to keep them out of the paint, and we want them to operate in the last, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of the shot clock. So mm-hmm. it's uh, so, and sometimes, you know, you can't, uh, you can't go that fast-paced offense and then continue to slow them down. But that's really what we're trying to emphasize and work on uh, and try to create that divide where we are getting those transition opportunities and they are not. You know, it's interesting. In that part of the world, I happened to go to the Sacramento game, Sacramento Kings game, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to the guys beforehand. They said, I asked them what to look for. They said, look for fast play, lots of transition, lots of early shot clock shots. They've got very much the same philosophy, and I think it, it's just it's the continued outgrowth of the of the analytics that people, as they better understand where the advantages are. Well, yeah, I think one one thing that that's really kind of uh, well, first of all, our guys love it, right? Like our guys really enjoy. Um, being able to get out and transition and play fast. Todd, did they uh, not get worn younger. down? I mean, they must have conditioning. Must be a bigger part of their of, of what you're well, emphasizing, right? A little bit, but I, I also think a big strength of our team is our depth. I see. Uh, okay, you know, we have we have uh, eleven guys really that could could come in and and, and really affect the game in a positive way. Uh, so we are getting up and down a little more that way. They love playing fast. And what I was going to say, you know. The old adage is, you know, sometimes coaches would say, hey, turn down a good shot and let's get a better one. You know, let's get a better one. But in reality, you're not going to get a better shot a lot of the time. So take that first good shot because when you try to, when you maybe pass up uh, or turn down a good shot, now you're letting turnovers come back into the equation. You're letting, you know, offensive rotation errors where guys are in the wrong place at the wrong time come into play. So we really are, even if it's just a good shot, we're, we're trying to take that early in the clock. Wow. So, Coach Golden, this is Eric Bradlow. I have a question. Um, more about the length of the season, which is you took 72, I guess, or 73 shots last night in the paint and threes. Um, obviously, the other coaches know. Matter of fact, you're on this show. You've just announced what your strategy is. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, not that you didn't already. They can see the game film. 
Guys back on defense are going to run out to the three-point line in the paint. Matter of fact, they will leave an 18-footer wide open for you guys, knowing you're not going to take it. Are you not worried that your shooting percentage will go down as the season goes on because the other teams play not better defense but different defense? Are you not worried that you just said you want to score in the first 10 seconds of the shot clock? Great. They'll make sure they do something in the first 10 seconds. Are you not worried that you should, you know, from an economics point of view, should you be playing a mixed strategy where sometimes you use the Coach Golden rules and sometimes you don't and you have to mix it up a bit? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. I, I just think it's hard. It's one thing to, to kind of understand um, what we're looking to do, and then it's another thing to try to take it away. And, again, I, you know, I'm totally comfortable with my guys playing aggressive. You know, one area that uh, it really shows up, and, and it has so far as, as we've competed this year, is we, you get to the line more as well. And, and as you guys know, that's the most efficient way to score. If you get to the line, it's about 1.4 points per possession as opposed to right around 1.0, whether it's shooting a three or, or shooting a two. So, um, you know, I, I've, if teams are trying to take us out of it and they're focusing on that, that's great. And uh, we'll, we'll let the chips fall and see where they land. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting to see how they adapt, since this is such an extreme philosophy. And it's tough. It's I mean, it's it's not clear what how advantageous it would be to to change that. Do you expect to, uh, Coach Golden for this philosophy to work differentially well against um, you know when you're playing Sonoma State versus you know let's say Gonzaga's on your schedule? So how how do you like in other words, what are the interaction effects, if you'd like, from a statistical point of view between your strategy and the quality of the opponent? Yeah, I think that's it's a it's a really good point. And but again, it's the same. I think Gonzaga. One thing that they and what we're doing right now, Gonzaga has been great at it for the past ten years. That's the bottom. You know, they have a great delta between what they do in transition, what the opponents do. Um, so obviously, you know, we're we're playing with the same kind of goals a little bit. Sure, their talent's really good. But again, I, I just I just always get back to this is what's going to give us the best chance to win. I think with this group that we have the type of personnel that we have uh, and the way our team's shaped, getting up and down offensively. And then, again, like playing a style defensively where, you know, we're containing in the backcourt. Once we get in the in the front court, really just working on te- keeping teams out of the paint and staying out of rotations defensively and really just trying to force tough twos that are contested are, are going to give us the best chance to win. You said this sure. thing last time we talked to you about how – how you how you determine playing time and it was it was driven off of what you guys do at practice can you talk about that system a little bit yeah and and it's uh just just to be clear it's really what we do is we have our we call it the hustle stats and again it's really where our coaching staff will grade it, it's you know I, i've listened to a couple podcasts you guys have had where you've had guys from uh, pro football focus on it, it's a similar concept where we're grading individual players performance on each possession Wow. Um, okay. and we have different different categories, uh, shooting, ball handling, rebounding, and defense. And within those categories, we have different stats that we keep. And some of them are your typical box score stats, you know, your blocks, steals, assists, turnovers. But we do add uh, some different statistics that we're really just trying to implement a style of play, right? Like we talked about our shooting statistics. Another thing that we do that I think is very valuable is – you know, an assist is a, it's an interesting stat because it's relying upon the guy that you're passing to making a shot. Right. Where what we want to do is we want to give guys, uh, we want to give them credit for making the right play. So we give the same point total for assists that we do for a stat that we call virtual assists, which is if, okay. if I'm penetrating into the paint and I throw out to a wide open three point shooter and he misses it, 
you still get credit for that assist. We call it a virtual assist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same point value as an actual assist. Mm-hmm. And then we also give guys the same value for an assist to foul. So if I penetrate and I drop it off to a big, he goes up, he gets fouled. He does, you, know, you don't get an assist for that in the box score. But we give you credit for that right. in practice because these are all positive plays that are resulting in good results for our team. Right. So we go through, and there's there's negative stats as well. Like one thing that we did this year is we made turnovers incredibly punitive uh, because it's just really the worst play in basketball. Turnovers usually lead to transition offensive opportunities for your opponents. So it goes back to what we were talking earlier. We will take a good shot over a turnover every time. Mm-hmm. And it might be a quick shot. might be something that looks a little – uh, out of the realm of the offense, but again, turning the ball over. So, you know, it's just such a bad thing to do. Uh, so we made that really punitive, uh, you know, like blow buys on defense. We, we obviously uh, ding you pretty good. If you don't contest a jump shot, uh, we ding you pretty good. Just different things like that. So we'll grade these guys and then we will come up with a hustle stat number. We will divide that by the amount of possessions that they played in practice to make it uh, more equal across all, you know, 15 players in a program. Right. And then, what we do is what we we start the first five guys um, at each position in our first couple of scrimmages of the year. So that's kind of what the the carrot at the end of the the practices is, is that you get to start those first couple of scrimmages. And then uh, I reserve the right to to make adjustments as we move forward. <laughs> <laughs> Put your finger on the scale for the actual games. One one mm-hmm. detail there that I'm curious about, given how dependent play is on your, who you're playing with. How systematically do you rotate guys in and make sure they're playing with different line mates, if you will, just to kind of normalize those stats as well? It, it's a it's a great question, and I think that's one thing that I think our staff did a really good job on this year. You know, generally in the past, we've tried to kind of come up with our top seven or eight guys within the first couple weeks of practice and then build them up throughout the first, or I guess the next two to three weeks before we play our first game. Well, what we did this year uh, – at the start of practice for the first month is we changed the teams every day in practice. Oh, that's fantastic. So good. So what we wanted, obviously, to give different guys opportunities to play together, to take a look at different lineup combinations uh, as we got into the season. And obviously, when you're playing with good players, it's better to do well. So we wanted to mix it up. So, you know, some starters were playing with some guys, some freshmen, you know, so they were playing with some less experienced guys to see, you know, if they were – pulling them up or if the freshmen were dragging them down well todd this is yep but this is i I really want to know like because the claim would be we don't do enough of this and it's not just in basketball not just in sports it's in non-sports organizations we we think we know who's best and we start giving them the best assignments and they get the resources and turns out they start doing better but it all kind of flowed from a noisy perception to begin with so my main question for you other than like fantastic you're doing this thing that seems like it's really helpful how insightful was it for you like did you find out that maybe one of these players that you would have put in the top seven didn't make the top seven and did you have a player who you might not have thought that highly of emerge unexpectedly yeah uh, we had a little bit of both um i think what it did uh that was the best for us as a staff is it, it allowed us to realize you know who really our top four guys were we you know no matter who these guys were playing with or what combination they were you know they were out there with they were always they were winning you know they they were having the the most positive point differential so it allowed us to really build around those guys as we constructed our team uh you know through the course of the preseason and then we were able to say all right we're we can throw this guy out there if he's playing with you know this group of four and he's going to be just fine he might be our 10th or 11th best guy but we know he's going to 
be able to, to adapt and play really well because he's out there with other guys that are capable. Whereas, you know, some other guys, maybe our sixth man, he only needs, you know, two starters out there with him. He can carry the seventh and eighth guy as well because right. he's just as capable. Um, and that's where, again, because we have a deep team, I think we have 10 or 11 guys who are fully capable of, of contributing on any given night. It's allowed us to, to kind of juggle our rotations based upon okay. that. Okay. So, Coach, let's take your um, strategy of scoring everybody on every play to the extreme. So let me ask two areas. Do you do it for recruiting, which means, and this is specifically, let's assume you can't get necessarily the same blue-chip talent as Duke, okay? Sure. One thing you can look... That's a fair assumption. Yeah, it's a fair (laughs) assumption. But what you can look for is residuals. So people that do better than, let's say, the traditional stats other people use to evaluate people. So first, let me ask you about recruiting. The second, related, is do you do this when you scout opponents? So now you're like... Let this person shoot as often as they want, because this person's going to be either taking low probability, bad shots, this person's not going to pass the ball appropriately. So both, can you talk about the recruiting side and the scouting the opponent side? Because if you're going to drink this analytics Kool-Aid, let's do it for everything. 100%. And, you know, we really have tried to use it a lot uh, from a recruiting standpoint. And what we're, how we use it is really just as a talent identifier. Uh, you know, in AAU... There's, there's three premier uh, tours, I guess you would want to call them, are circuits. You know, you have the Nike circuit, Adidas circuit, Under Armour circuit. All three of those circuits, uh, they keep box score stats. So we're able to work with a, a third-party company named Open Look Analytics, and they pull the XML files and get all the data. So what we look for in recruiting is undervalued guys who have high usage, which we think is probably the most important thing when, when identifying young talent uh and by high usage meaning guys that end possessions uh, that's something that's that's really valuable obviously what offensive efficiency they're able to pair with that high usage and then how many minutes they play on their given au teams and those three factors we've found um it really does it helps identify undervalued talent guys that you know this is the same money ball approach guys that might not pass the eye test but they're very very productive uh also in international competition, we have five guys from Europe on our team, uh, and we really come through FIBA stats. So when they're playing with their national team in these different U18 or U20 events, uh, we'll go through and look and see which guys, you know, played at the highest PERs, which guys, you know, had the best offensive efficiency with high usage in those events. And then we'll, we'll go out and try to recruit those players to USF based upon that. So trying to take as much of the human element out of it obviously you pair some of the eye test with it but uh we're really kind of trying to piggyback off that to identify some of our young talent for sure todd what about their response to your philosophy you've you've talked about recruiting in terms of what you go look for are you seeing are you seeing any advantages in attracting people to you given how how extreme you're taking this philosophy and how different this might be from some other places you know, there, there's some, obviously, uh, you know, some kids, some kids understand it. You know, some kids, whether it's based in their high school program or just from because they're followers of the game, they understand it and they appreciate it. You know, you know, parents really like it. <laughs> you know, they, a lot of parents understand and get it. And they, they just appreciate the, that it's a meritocracy and that they're going to be able to compete and that there's tangible information we can give them, tangible results that we can show them in terms of, you know, how they can get better or what they need to do better. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those things where we talk about it in recruiting just because we want to make sure everything's transparent on the front end. They know what they're getting themselves into. And, I, you know, I don't know if there's been many guys that are jumping in because 
of it. But uh, I think once they get here and they understand that it's going to make them a better player, uh, they, they take pride and, and they, they enjoy it. They like it. Todd, last question for you. We, we could talk to you all morning, but we're going to need to turn you back to your real job. Uh, if what what would you like? What would be most helpful to you from the basketball analytics community? Are there problems that you you're facing, or challenges you have, or just contributions you'd like from from the analytics community? You know, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say there's many challenges. I think for for me and our staff, you know, we're just trying to always find that that little edge. We're we're always looking at it, and we're trying to do different things. And again, like we discussed earlier, we're, we thought changing those lineups was, was a great way to get a better understanding of, of which players were more valuable. That's one, you know, so just trying to do these little things here and there to, to gain edges, but no, it's, it's, uh, again, it's, it's been enjoyable. My staff's done a really, really great job. We have some really bright guys who, who are able to crunch some numbers and, and collect a lot of, you know, accurate data that, that helps us identify certain things. And, uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep running with it because we think we're ahead of the game, and uh, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Well, we need some we need some uh, apparel, man. We need we need we need to get this is this gonna be an official basketball team of the Wharton Moneyball Show. I think we we got. I love it. We're <laughs> all in, man. We'll, we'll send you gear absolutely. <laughs> We are. Uh, we're going to be following what you do, pulling for you. Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Congrats on being out of the box in such good fashion, and good luck with the schedule coming up. I appreciate you guys. Thanks a lot. I'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take Sounds care. good. Coach Todd Golden, head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team. He's an analytically analytically oriented analytics oriented coach. Doing a lot of interesting things. I love the stuff he's doing with, with practice in particular. I like the thing that you, the area you focused on, which is he's almost experimenting with different lineups. Like maybe there are interactions between players, and, and you need to measure the that. The only way to do it, only way to know, is to run the, by the part of the goal standard is to run the run the experiment, which he's doing. You got practice. Why not do it in practice? These guys are doing it. It's fantastic. All right, Todd Golden, University of San Francisco basketball team, give you. a Give you a team to pull for out there on the West Coast. West Coast Conference. They've been the same conference as Gonzaga. All right. That has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do it live here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, for Audie Weiner, who was in earlier. For Shane Jensen, who's out and about. For Eric Bradlow, who's right here with me right now. This has been Cade Massey. Thank you to Dion Simpkins, associate producer, Zach Drapkin, Maddie Datz, the boss lady, Patty Hall. Many thanks. You guys come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.